0: If a professional is not working in partnership with me and my husband, I find someone else. And I advise all of you to do that. Sometimes it's hard, particularly when you're in crisis, you don't have any energy or emotional reserves, but just persevere. I really believe that the solutions are out there. And if you believe that, that's half the battle. Want to truly be the best parent you can be and help your child thrive after their autism diagnosis? This podcast is for all in parents like you who know more is possible for your child.
1: With each episode, we reveal a secret that empowers you to be the parent your child needs now, saving you time, energy and money and helping you focus on what truly matters most, your child. I'm Cass. And I'm Len.
0: Welcome to Autism Parenting Secrets.
1: Welcome to Autism Parenting Secrets. I just want to start off by recognizing you for tuning in, for being open to new insights and better ways to support your child, because you are the key. You're the guru you've been looking for, and no one else has the answers that are right for your child uh, other than you, the parent. So that's true, but yet it's always helpful to learn from other parents who have been on the journey who are perhaps a little bit further ahead of you. And so in that spirit, I'm so excited to have uh, our guest today. It's Jan Stewart, and I'm really excited to welcome her to the show. She's the mother of two children, and she's also a highly regarded mental health and neurodiversity advocate. She's the author of Hold On Tight, A Parent's Journey, Raising Children with Mental Illness. And she shares our mission, to inspire and empower parents. So today we're gonna be focusing on one of the many key insights that Jan shares in her book, the secret this week is go for integrated partnership. Welcome, Jan.
0: Oh, thank you, Len, I'm delighted to be here.
1: Wonderful, well, uh, it's an intriguing word that I just used in terms of the secret, right? Integrated partnership, Mm -hmm. So, uh, so again, There's so many things that I know you've touched on in your book and in what you're putting out there, but forming a team, consciously, with intent, choosing a team to surround your child with, to surround yourself with as you're navigating trying to be the best parent you can be for children, um, it's something I think a lot of parents, every parent knows that's important, but I don't think everyone really gives it sustained, intentional thought So this concept of partnership, let's talk about, and then integrated, I think is a really powerful word that may not be so obvious.
0: Yeah, and I agree with you 100%. So it will be helpful. I want to talk about this because in my book, Hold On Tight, this is the most overarching insight in the book, to insist on an integrated partnership approach with every professional involved with your child's care. So let me back up and give you some background first. I think that would be helpful. Please. Explain our story a little bit and how I came to this. Because partnerships and integrated partnerships cross all facets of your child's life, from the time they're born through adulthood. And I'm going to talk about healthcare providers, partnerships, partnerships with schools, and later with employers. And by the way, with your own partner, with your family and friends, and we can get into that if there's time as well. But to back up, so as you mentioned, I have two children, Andrew and Ainsley. They're both now grown, but they both have multiple mental health and neurodevelopmental disorders. Andrew has autism, Tourette syndrome, uh, obsessive compulsive disorder, ADHD, and learning disabilities. And his younger sister, Ainsley, also has Tourette syndrome, ADHD, and learning disabilities, along with severe mood and anxiety disorders. She and I were just talking the other day, and she said, I might also be on the spectrum a little bit. And I think she probably is. Um, so those co-occurring conditions, as you know, are very, very common. In hindsight, when we look back to even when they were born, there were a number of neurodevelopmental markers. For example, Andrew's hands and feet move constantly in circular motions. He never talked to himself or gurgled or played in his crib. And he had no self-control or regulation when it came to feeding. I mean, he would have just kept going nonstop and did unless we stopped him. And when we stopped him, he was just as happy. So you saw that. But every time I brought up a concern with the doctor, and I know a number of you will nod your heads in agreement. He would turn to me and say, "Jan, stop being an overly vigilant triple type A mother. Your kids are just fine.
1: Kids are kids are kids. Just you know, don't That's worry." Exactly
0: about. Right. And through the next several years, we had increasing concerns about both children. Uh, there was impulsivity, distractibility, a vocal and motor tics. There was huge anxiety, uh, lack of social cues. The list goes on. And yet they learned to read and write and do simple math. And they were both social and outgoing and had friends at that time. And so he kept discounting our concerns like a broken record, as did our family and friends, by the way. And it was only shortly after Andrew turned nine, when out of nowhere, he erupted into daily two-hour frightening meltdowns that we now know are emotional overload, you know, are from that. Right. Followed within a month by bizarre nonstop compulsive rituals, you know, where he couldn't walk through a door for 20 or 30 minutes without counting to a number certain 14, it was over and over and over again, he would get down on the filthy floor and lick it and they grew and became more bizarre. Well, it was then that his behavior and symptomology was so severe that he was partially diagnosed with obsessive compulsive disorder, obviously, and with ADHD, still no autism. But we felt there was something more. And so we kept looking, and it was two things happened. About six months later, we found a wonderful developmental pediatrician. And this is the first time we really benefited from that word partnership. This pediatrician got down on the floor, not only with Andrew and Ainsley, but with us, and sat down down with us for 90 minutes, listened to us, respected what we had to say, told us we were wrong, that we knew our children best. And by the way, that's the first insight in my book, Trust Your Gut as a Parent, but that's a different conversation.
1: And, but it is a super powerful, you know, just everyone just let that sink in. that is such an incredibly important concept.
0: Without a doubt. And he, along with our downtown hospital, who had done the partial diagnosis, Sick Kids Hospital in downtown Toronto was world class. But they said, finally, there's more here. You need to go to the States because they see 10 times more kids because the population with the same conditions. And sure enough, again, I went into a lot of research and found Dr. Joseph Biederman at Mass General Hospital, sadly, recently died. But that word partnership again. He, You saw his accessibility. He was available 24-7. He clearly explained without talking down to us. He fully diagnosed the children with what I said they had. He reassured us while being realistic. And he helped really kickstart and accelerate my education, which had clearly already begun. And that continues today. But He regularly communicated not only with us, but with the kids psychologists in Toronto. So although they were part, and this is such a key partnership, make sure, and I do to this day with both children, that the psychiatrists and the psychologists or social workers or whomever you're using, behavior consultants, whatever, all communicate with one another and with us. We form a team so that we can adjust our approaches. Sometimes it's medications. Sometimes it's therapeutic approaches. And that way we're also not surprised if something happens. And by the way, as we all know, children can be great manipulators. So we want to make sure we're all on the same page. That's That's in the healthcare side. Now, on top of that, there's no question that at times throughout the journey, you may have to change healthcare providers whether someone does die or retire, or it's just not working anymore. Um, After many years, I'll talk about Andrew first uh, again. After 20 years with the same psychologist, they started going around in circles and it just became less productive. So back to research, I went, found a new psychologist. And again, so empowering and reaffirming that partnership that she happens to have with us And with Andrew's psychiatrist. And similarly for Ainsley. Uh, Ainsley was in deep distress as a teenager and started superficially, but still cutting her arms and wrists. And it was very upsetting. She also became physically aggressive. Became clear to us her meds weren't working. Her psychiatrist had become fairly rigid. So back to research, found a new psychiatrist as well as a new psychologist, and they work hand in glove together and with us. So it's really. Breathtaking to see. In the foreword of my book, Len, a very famous psychiatrist, Peter Satmari from Canada, uh, writes He wrote that the healthcare system is unfortunately geared to service the provider, not the family and partnership, and that the patient is, in fact, the whole family. We really need that family centered team approach, and that's what works. So, that's the healthcare side.
1: Now, and, and, before, and before we move from the healthcare side, I just want to throw one comment. Sure. You're talking about how important it is for this team approach. But I think the reality from my perspective, and I want to get your, your, your thoughts in terms of generally speaking, practitioners who are out there, whether a psychiatrist or a pediatrician, I would, I would argue the minority of practitioners really truly embody a team concept, Um, So so that's why choosing the right people, um, not everyone may buy into what you're saying is so important that is that you're part of a team on behalf of the family with the primary focus being on the um, the child, let's say, as opposed to being more focused on what's best for that practitioner. So would you agree that the majority of practitioners are not truly embodying this team approach?
0: I think that's probably true. I don't actually know, although I think it is improving. We're seeing a lot more improvement with that. But I have to tell you, Len, whether, again, it's in healthcare, schools, employment, whatever. If a professional is not working in partnership with me and my husband, I find someone else. And I advise all of you to do that. Sometimes it's hard, particularly when you're in crisis. You don't have any energy or emotional reserves, but just persevere. You know, I really believe that the solutions are out there, and if you believe that, that's half the battle. And go find them.
1: Sure. So, by all means, now let's move away from the healthcare perspective and and the other facets where a team approach is really important.
0: Sure. I just thought I'm going to backtrack one minute. I just thought of one additional point that I think is important. At least here in Canada, we have found through increasing awareness of autism. That community pediatricians and doctors are much more aware and capable now of screening for and diagnosing autism. So, across North America, we know that the wait lists are horrendous to find specialists (laughs) and to wait for them. But if your community doctors can at least get you there some of the way, part of the way, or all the way, it's fantastic. And we are seeing a significant improvement in this regard. So that's the last thought on that. Switching to schools. So to me, again, partnerships and teamwork mean everything. And again, I wouldn't have kept either and or Ainsley at a school that didn't work in partnership. Now, both of them started in our local public school system, and it worked to a point and they really tried, but they weren't equipped just because of the multitude of the kids' co-occurring disorders. Not, you know, I don't think autism in itself means that they can't handle them. And again, this is many years ago. Schools are much more adept now at, at, and much better at being cognizant of and what needs doing. So did a lot of research. And when Andrew was in the middle of grade four, We say grade four in Canada, not fourth grade. We I found a very small structured school for kids with ADHD, learning disabilities, and co-occurring conditions, four kids in a class. And they taught me a lot about partnership. They just assumed we were partners. They would send notes home every single night about a day. Of course, they would call if there was a concern, and we would send them back the next day so that. They were never surprised. Uh, had had those frightening meltdowns that lasted up to two hours a day that I mentioned. And this lasted for months until we found the right doctor, the right medication. And the first time he was given this very powerful antipsychotic medication that helped with the meltdowns, he fell asleep in class for three hours. But the school didn't even blink an eye. They didn't bother to call me. They knew what was going on because they had been involved from when we started seeing this doctor to the prescribing of the medication, and they knew his body was simply adjusting to it. Right. Now, so in Ainsley's class, totally different kettle of fish. Andrew, gentle, loving, rule bound. Ainsley, mischievous, fun, out of control, and disruptive with extreme ADHD and executive function problems, she'd get to school, disruptive, jumping on desks, ranting, raving, swearing, constantly sent to the principal's office. Of course, it wasn't so funny at the time. I was so drained and so upset. But it it's what it was. And again, when we decided to look for her, I found another small structured school that fit her. And we had monthly group meetings with the principal, all her teachers. We brought in her external psychologist and us so that we could adjust course. Didn't always work, but she was able to stay in school and we would make plans accordingly. It was absolutely critical. So what you find is, whether it's in healthcare or schools or more, you optimize your child's success and give them more chances to lead their most Fulfilling and best lives by having everyone on the same page. It's so important. You want everyone singing from the same hymn book, listening to each other and sharing perspectives. That's how you can move forward the best together, in my mind. So that's
1: schools. Yep. No, that's that's powerful. And just like with practitioners, there are going to be some schools that really embody that. And so, so, and they're out there. You can find them, but there's also schools that may pretend. That they value a team approach. But then when it comes time for actually executing on it, they're either not, they don't follow it through or they're not equipped to follow it through. And then there's just some places, whether it's a school or a practitioner where they just have a very hierarchical model. That's, that's what's, what's a lot of, you know, that's the foundation. And, and even if they wanted to, it's going to, it's their processes and their way of doing things doesn't really put the parent on equal footing. Like to, to allow that partnership to happen. So I think you, you, you've shared an example where you found that. And I think now, it, it's as you said, it's even more likely that you'll be able to find those schools and practitioners. But you might have to look and you might have to fire some before you find the right one. So firing quickly and not waiting too long is also, uh, I think, an important move.
0: That's correct. And of course, if you're not sure, bring in an ally or an advocate like your child psychologist or someone you trust to say, do I have it wrong? Because we parents can be wrong from time to time. But we do know our children best, as I've said. I had a parent call me just two weeks ago. She has, a n I think it's an eight or a nine-year-old son who, who has just been diagnosed with autism. And when the school found out, it's a a private school, uh, very you know, high performing, 100% go to university type of school, and he had been struggling a little, which is why they got him assessed. The school found out and said, "Oh, what a shame! Should we start looking into institutions for him?" Wow, I was horrified, and I said, "Pull him out today!" Right?
1: Yeah. No. Any whoever it is, any child, any institution that looks and identifies your child as a defect. Right. I mean that that's a pretty good sign. Okay, that is not a fit.
0: Yes, that's absolutely true. And by the way, as a side note, when you role model partnership and teamwork, you educate your children to do the same. And as they grow older, they you increasingly empower them to become involved and to follow that partnership, and both my kids do that today. Fantastic. So should we talk now about employment later?
1: Yeah, let's let's dive into that now. So
0: for you parents of younger autistic and neurodivergent kids, you're not going to necessarily know what your child's capabilities and needs are going to be as they transition into adulthood. And I counsel you, don't worry about it. You do your best now. Of course, financially, you should plan. And that's a whole nother conversation. But when it comes to employment, the statistics on neurodivergent individuals finding and keeping meaningful employment are terrible. There's far higher unemployment and even more underemployment. And a lot of that is due to a lack of awareness, a lack of education that leads to fear, misunderstandings and stigma and necessary discrimination, unnecessary discrimination, needless discrimination. Now, what most inclusive employers, if I flip it, will do is they would be willing to let the autistic or neurodivergent employee take the lead. Tell them what they need to succeed and then customize accommodations and give the support that would be customized for that individual. When that happens, there's a much, much greater chance of success. Now, I look back at Andrew and I think about his previous employers versus his current employer. So Andrew looks different. He has a major speech impediment, making him difficult to understand. In his case, unlike many autistic individuals, he has limited cognitive capacity. He doesn't understand social cues, lines of authority, boundary. And he takes more of a supervisor's time mm-hmm. and needs more time off for healthcare and other appointments. And here's the word partnership again. So his first employer... Major retailer. He was a cashier. And I remember thinking, how is he going to ever do this? But everyone was wonderful with him. At the time, there were still pennies and change and um, people helped him because he couldn't make change. He was never ripped off. And he thrived there for the first five years. And then the retailer changed management. And it was obvious that they didn't want someone who was looking different, who was disabled looking in the front, interacting with customers. So they tried without explanation to put him in the back and stock shelves instead for a while. But I knew what was going on. I waited a few weeks and then I took care of it. His second employer uh, and, and they, to their credit, by the way, they put him back on his cashier station, but he trusted been broken. It wasn't going to work anymore.
1: I was going to say how did you take care of it? So you got him back.
0: I I wrote to the company's head office and told them, this is needless discrimination. If you want me to go to the media, I will be happy to. And within 24 hours, he was back on cash. I think to their credit, they were horrified at what the store had done. Mm -hmm. Um, However, it just wouldn't have worked for Andrew much longer after that. The next organization, which is a major Toronto-based organization, really tried to do the right thing. They wanted to but they were too bureaucratic to work in partnership with us. And so what did they do? They treated him like a child. He was their first autistic employee. They gave him one hour of boring work. And remember, boring work is not good for a brain that also has ADHD. And then they said as a reward at the end of that, Andrew, you can go watch TV. Not very purposeful or meaningful. And so he became increasingly unhappy. But now, for the past four and a half years, he's been with one of Canada's major telecommunications companies, Rogers Communications, and they have translated that well-meaning into practice. And a good part of Andrew's success there is the word partnership, both with us and with Andrew. Now, many autistic and neurodevelopmental uh, neurodivergent individuals need to advocate for themselves. But if you're not able and Andrew is not fully able, he can somewhat, bring in again, let's just like with the schools, an ally or an advocate. And so Andrew uses me and we're partners together and we're partners with Rogers. So what did Rogers do? The first thing they did before he even started was they agreed to hold an in-service education session in which all his managers, the human resources department, and they have a well-being department, all came. And we explained Andrew's conditions and disorders, his full profile, his strengths, and he has many. He's a charmer. He's infectious. He's great at customer service. And we talked about his major issues in the workplace, which in his case are largely impulsivity and anxiety. He also may not understand certain things that are being said. He's literal. So if You give him a metaphor, or if you say something that you don't mean, he won't get it. And we talked about what they could do to optimize his success and theirs. And since that time, they have listened to our recommendations, shared our thinking, and implemented. So, for example, Andrew has a lot of difficulty, as many autistic uh, individuals do with change and transitions between activities and navigating them. So they've set his work hours the same every day, 30 to 4.30, while the rest of his team members work on shift. That's one thing. Uh, most importantly, on our recommendation, they have brought in a job coach to help both the company and Andrew. And this job coach, uh, which is National Across Canada program, not only helped Rogers integrate Andrew, but to this day, every month they meet with them, sometimes alone, sometimes together more if needed, so that small issues don't mushroom and can be dealt with. They call me whenever a minor issue comes up so we can nip it in the bud again. For example, uh, the other week, they called me and they said, Andrew seems a little distracted at work. We could deal with it. And so, you know, and sometimes he gets anxious or uh, he has some sensory sensitivities, not a lot of them. So they've dealt with it. and, And then he happily 10 minutes later, is ready to get back to work. Sometimes it's five, sometimes it's longer, whatever it is. They know he has high anxiety. So if he does something wrong at work, as we all do, they deal with it right away. They let him know they're in his corner, what he could have done differently, how he can remedy it, and that his job is not at risk because of it. And then he doesn't go home and have a panic attack or, or the anxiety rising through the roof. And what they I guess the last thing, Len, that they've done the most recently is at his four year anniversary, they called me and they said, you know, Andrew's done so well here over the past four years. We should really start looking at job advancement. And I said, no, please don't do that. His anxiety will go through the roof. What you can look at instead is job enhancement, not advancement. Right. That's exactly what they've done. Giving them courses, they have someone sit with him to make sure he understands the courses. Giving me a little more responsibility here and there. It's It's wonderful to see. And what they get in return is a loyal, valued employee who wants to stay at Rogers till he's 70 and be the best employee there, not the best autistic or disabled employee.
1: Right.
0: So that's employment
1: well that that's a, an amazing story and just a good example where there are companies out there who really sincerely you know not only want to do right by their employees all their employees and, and particularly um uh, children let's say on on the spectrum but again they back it up they 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 do more than just kind of say one thing or posturing they really are they they seem like they have a setup where they truly have processes in place to course correct, to ensure that it is a win-win for both the company and for, in this case for your son. So uh, no, it's it's very encouraging that companies more and more are out there that are you know, truly acting in, in, in alignment with what they say is important. And again, I can't stress that enough because it's popular now to say that you're inclusive and that, you know, and you hire, you know, People of all you know, races, uh, abilities, whatever the case may be. But there's a lot that it, that it is all for optics as opposed to really sincerely wanting to make it work. And, um, and love that he's in a situation where um, when he comes home, he's not like exhausted and overwhelmed and, and stimulated. They, they've created an environment that he can contribute without it taking an unnecessary toll on him.
0: Absolutely. Look, there's no question that it's improving. We know that mental health and neurodiversity still have a long way to go. Uh, And part of it is our responsibility as parents, along with neurodivergent and autistic individuals themselves as they grow up. You know, I I look in awe at many racialized and marginalized populations that have gotten themselves organized. But in our world, in mental health and neurodiversity, we're still too fractured. And we don't have that power of cohesion yet that we need to push this forward. I think autism is doing a fairly good job, but we have further to go.
1: Yeah, no doubt. No doubt. One other thing I'll just, uh, I want to put out there based on what you were saying when they wanted to give your son, you know, like advancement, like to move him up the ladder. I think it's a good analogy, you know, just for the whole journey itself is that, or parents and what people are saying your child should do and whether it's therapy or schooling, et cetera, you know, there's kind of a standard path and that standard path may not be in any way a fit for your particular child. So in this case, I I saw it, and we both come from uh, the professional world uh, in terms of careers. And it would always amuse me when somebody I was working with, let's say they would get promoted and like, they really enjoyed their job were really good at their job. And then they get promoted with all of a sudden they're managing people and they're like, I don't want to do this. I'm not good at it. I have no desire. And so it's the same for your son where, okay, the advancement sounds like a good thing, but it may not be in any way a fit. So that's what led you to, okay, his job can be enhanced, but he doesn't have to move up the ladder because he's unique, has unique gifts, has unique abilities. It's about finding that fit, which very well may not be the prescribed path.
0: Yeah, excellent point, Len. And, and this leads in, if we have time to talk about marriages and partnerships, and in terms of that point, would you it's like me to
1: It's too important not to talk about. So let's, yeah. let's, let's dive in.
0: So we know that having an autistic child or a neurodivergent child wrecks havoc with every family member. There's going to be fear, anger, and resentment. And I've been there, you know, I can't tell you how many times I've wanted to crawl into a hole and disappear, secretly run away, and it goes from there. But the key to being able to move forward is to not only accept, but embrace the fact that your life is not going to be as planned for or hoped for in many ways. And both you and your life partner have to be on the same page that way. I have heard so many parents blame one another, accuse one another, you're not interested enough, you're doing the wrong thing, undermine one another. You know, I heard a parent last week say, well, your father said you should do this, but let's not do it. Now, this is true for all marriages and partnerships has nothing to do with neurodiversity. But that said, we know that the stresses and strains are magnified with our particular kids disagreements about everything from medications and therapy to discipline and diagnosis medications i think in particular cause huge disagreements you know one parent may not think the child needs meds may not believe in meds and may be concerned and i understand that th- that the child is going to turn into a zombie or have other concerning side effects but remember your children have inbuilt antenna they know when their parents aren't on the same page and my husband, David, and I have not been immune from this. You know, We have two kids, as you know, and sometimes, even to this day, we're so consumed with the kids that we have little time for each other, much less ourselves. But what's key is that we give each other the benefit of the doubt. I truly believe that almost all parents try their best. It may not be what you want. I want to throttle David. You know, many days, he's much slower than I am and less decisive. And I think, hurry up. And he turns back at me and he says, you're overly decisive. And he's correct. You know, we meet at the middle as a result. And sometimes one of us bends more than the other. But it's so important to bow your head to your partner and say, we can do this. In our marriage, we've naturally gravitated to different roles. I've done most of the heavy lifting you know, with finding doctors, schools, employers, housing, you know, anything that way. And David has naturally taken the more fun parenting role. He's gone on trips with them. He's helped coach teams. He's taken them to baseball, soccer, hockey games, and that stuff. And that's equally important. But the key is, he, it's not that he's been unwilling. It's that I'm internally wired to take charge, which I'm sure drives him crazy at times too. But We do give each other the benefit of the doubt. We even joke about the genesis of the kids' disorders. David has a restless leg. And so I point at him and say, Aha, ADHD. And he points right back at me with my perfectionism and says, Aha, back, OCD. It doesn't really matter from a family perspective where these disorders come from. Interesting from a research and clinical perspective. What you want to do is act as harmoniously as you can and move forward to the benefit
1: of the child. Yeah. Yeah. It's so, a line. It's alignment. Yeah. And that what you just said at the end is that what, if each parent can like just have a ceasefire and just ask themselves the question, what's truly going to benefit the child? Like no parent would ever answer that question saying, well, mom and dad being on opposite ends of something or or, or undercutting each other's efforts no one would ever say that's going to be great for the child, right? So so there's an opportunity to get aligned. And that may be one of the spouses saying, you know, being okay, not getting what they want and going with the other sincerely, not just grudgingly. Um, so yeah, if, if the intent's there, there's a lot that can be done to get more on the same page, particularly for the important things. And um, as I've I've said many times on this podcast, if, if my wife Cass and I were totally on opposite ends, you know, we would share our perspectives respectfully. And if there really was a tie, I would go with her because I felt like the mother's intuition that there's just something magical and intangible. And
0: thank you. <laughs> and, and,
1: and, and, by, and by the way, that's proved to be a really good move, by the way. And and, the, and those key things going with Cass's gut. Made all the difference, even though at the time I was hundred percent convinced I was right, or that my my approach was the right one. Um, you know, so again, every parents or, or spouses, partners, they can have their own way of you know whatever rules they want to have on how they get aligned. But it truly makes a gigantic difference for your child if both parents are aligned, and even just the negative energy that both parents are going to be conveying by being in opposite corners. Our kids feel that. They have to feel that. So that's totally within your ability to do something about.
0: Without it. Yet. And this extends to your family members, extended family members and friends. That word partnership and teamwork again. You know, I strongly counsel those of you who have friends who are not truly supportive, who either distance themselves or critical and judgmental. They're not working in partnership with you as friends. They're not being supportive. Shed them. It's very difficult. It's upsetting because some of them have been longtime friends. But in my mind, they're not truly friends. Now, you can't shed family members as much as all of us. There are certain family members we'd like to. But you learn again with those who are critical, judgmental or the worst, I think, family members are those who tell you their advice because they have all the answers and they know nothing about autism or whatever. Um, Learn to navigate and limit your engagement with them because they're not your partner. They're not your support. Uh, You can't avoid them at times. And again, your children will see you role modeling this. And as they grow older, this is what you want them to embody.
1: Yep. No, it's a great thing to model. And uh, and again, and, and I always assumed you know, people are ultimately well-intentioned, but their advice and their suggestions and their way of operating just may be something that is in no way supportive. And if it, that, that's true, and especially if they're a family member, yeah, you can minimize. Minimize exposure, I know in our family, we did that, and it, it and it helped to know, okay, this may not be forever, but for right now, we're going to have minimal contact with X, Y, and Z, um, and that's okay. That's about curating a truly supportive environment for your child to thrive, and it's going to be really hard for them to do that if there's negative influences that are surrounding them. So, yeah, you can stack the deck and decide who they're exposed to. And um, and uh, yeah, no, I think that's fantastic uh, perspective. Uh, but even before a parent can actually do s- operate that way, I- I'd be interested in what you have to say. It's easy for you and I both to talk about. Hey, you got to cut them out. You got to you know do all that. But early on, especially, how, what would you say to a parent in terms of how do they even step out of that mindset where? Hey, I don't know what's going on. I don't understand what's happening with my child. So therefore, I'm going to defer to the doctor or the practitioner who seems, who has the great diplomas and, and, and is more of an authority figure. You know, it's, it's hard initially to step out of that dynamic of automatically just kind of following what, and and it's the same thing with a parent. Like for that parent, their parents, you know, or the father and, and maternal figures, it's hard for them to say no to. The, the the perhaps lousy advice their own parents are giving them so so is there any trick or any suggestion about how a parent can just step into the possibility of claiming their own power
0: yes so first of all when you're a parent in crisis and we all know this is an endless roller coaster with most of our kids but when you're down first of all tell yourself you're not going to stay down it is going to lift but you don't worry about the next day or next hour, you're trying to get through minute by minute. And it's very hard. You don't have the emotional reserves or energy when your doctor tells you, don't worry, or this or that, you're going to go with that. Forgive yourself for that. That's okay. But when it lifts, and you do have a little time and reserves, and you know your child best, it goes back to that first insight and hold on tight that I've written, trust your gut as a parent that I mentioned earlier. If you think something is seriously wrong with your child, it generally is. Yes, you have to listen to your doctor. And as I said, I am empathetic with doctors who hear parents who needlessly and excessively worry. But don't give up. Be be that squeaky wheel. Be assertive rather than aggressive. But seek a second opinion, a third opinion. You deserve it. And don't give up. Trust that instinct.
1: Yeah. It's powerful, a powerful uh opportunity for parents to truly embrace that and 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 buy into that and you know, going back to the concept of this this episode, the title of this episode, the partnership piece of it again, it's it's equal partnership in the sense of being on a team and and being aligned on the goal, but ultimately the parent your gut. Your decision making is the key. So these are your 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 this partnership with this team of advisors. Yes, leverage their expertise. Bring them in here. Honestly, listen to what they have to say. But ultimately, you are the decision maker. So go for partnership as opposed to being hierarchical, right? Where where you're far below them or you're like way above them. Like view it as a partnership and then to the integrated pieces about having this perspective across all the dimensions of your child and and your experience.
0: Without a doubt. And, you know, let's use the American football analogy. Sometimes you play quarterback, sometimes you're on defense, but fullback, whatever it is, but you're all on the same team working together for the benefit of the team, of your child, of your own lives.
1: Yep. Yeah. Wonderful. And it makes sense. It's just, I go back to when everything started with Uh, with our son when he was first diagnosed. And that team concept, I really didn't have that in my mind. I I was much more like so many parents, just can somebody tell me what to do and I'll do it? I don't want to think about it. I don't want to have to evaluate. I don't want to do a lot of research. So I was totally in that mode of just let's hire the expert and they'll tell me what to do And all I can say is my own personal experience is that that was a horrible strategy (laughs) and (laughs) the better opportunity is, you know, put yourself. And again, I think my my wife and uh, myself operate differently, kind of like you and your husband, uh, where um, where we had different philosophies. But we ultimately did quickly get aligned to, you know, we got to form the right team. And, you know, some egos may be bruised and some feelings may be hurt, but we're going to make sure we have the right team for our son. And uh, that made all the difference.
0: Which is fantastic, but remember what I said earlier: forgive yourself for your mistakes. We all make them; we will continue to make them, and that's okay. Compliment yourself above all on your strength and perseverance.
1: Well, I think that's a lovely note to end our, our discussion on, and I really do appreciate um, everything that you're putting out. How you're taking your experience and truly trying to help other parents. Step into that more powerful position and to make better decisions, whatever is right for their child for for parents to truly be equipped to do that. So uh, your book is phenomenal. And congratulations on that. And we'll thank include you. in the show notes all the appropriate links. But uh, but again, Jim, thank you so much for taking the time to be with me today.
0: I'm delighted to be here. Thank you, Lynn. Want to discover your top autism parenting blind spot? Take our free quiz today. Go to allinparent.comslash go.